Hi, I'm Anthony Fury. Welcome to the latest episode of Full Comet. In December, we had a conversation on this show with Dr. Neil Rao about how the Omicron variant, while probably very transmissible, would prove mild and that the time had come to stop obsessing over case counts and isolation rules and move forward and find a way to get on with our lives. There were no thoughts at all of being plunged into lockdown again. And then it happened. Quebec and Ontario are in lockdown. Other provinces have brought in added restrictions. What on earth is going on? Surely it doesn't need to be this way. Our guest today has been on the front lines dealing with COVID patients since day one, and he breaks it all down for us. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, an infectious diseases physician at Trillium Health Partners in Mississauga, joins us now. Dr. Chakrabarty, great to have you here. Great to be here. How are you today? Doing okay. I'm uh, doing this uh, virtual school stuff, so it's a bit uh, difficult, but uh, managing through it. Yeah, no kidding. Well, well, let's get into it then, because I know you're doing the virtual school stuff. You're also someone who's on the front lines. You've been treating COVID patients since since the first wave. Right now across Canada, we've got Quebec under such uh, strict rules that they have police patrolling the streets to enforce curfews. We have Ontario back into lockdown. We have either school closures or at least delays pretty much all across the country. But I must ask, given what we know about Omicron right now and a lot of confirmation that, well, yes, this is a milder variant, would you say the punishment fits the crime? Is the reaction we're seeing right now proportional to the actual challenges that we are now facing? Yeah, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about this. And, you know, when I look at what's going on, I understand why the reaction is as it is. You know, when you look at these numbers that we've been, the case counts we've been following for the past you know, two years, this is something that has really dictated our actions. And these numbers are, you know, off the chart from what we've seen in the past. But when you look at what's happening on the ground, we are absolutely seeing pressure in the hospitals. There's a lot of patients. The patients overall are less sick than they were in the third wave. But, you know, I think it's important for us to look at other parts of the world, um, South Africa, Denmark, UK, they're having similar situations, but they didn't necessarily have to go into lockdown. And it really does bother me that this is kind of what has been associated as the response in any of these situations. So in my mind, I understand the reaction, but I do think that especially two years in with 90% or so people fully vaccinated on the ground, that this is an overreaction. Hmm. When we see those other jurisdictions, we have heard from some people in Ontario, well, you can't use South Africa because of this or that reason, because of uh, them having a younger average population base. You can't use Denmark because of this or that. You can't use this jurisdiction. You can't use the U.S. because they have a different hospital capacity system. We're kind of always told why the pathway must always lead to lockdowns in Ontario. We're not really uh, generally given uh, the argument as to why maybe we can go in a different direction. I think there is actually something to that point. You don't want to be completely taking a place uh, like South Africa and uh, just mapping it onto what will happen here in Canada. The circumstances are different, different demographics, different rates of uh, vaccination, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think it's important for us to look at other places and at least take some of the experience uh, and uh, mold it to our situation. I think that there is a hesitation to have any sort of positive uh, type of uh, spin on things. For example, it is true that overall that uh, uh, Omicron is milder, though we are seeing an expansion in hospitalizations. So those things can, uh, both things can be true at the same time, but I'm noticing that the bias tends to be towards believing anything that's going to have a negative outcome. How did we get to that point, that that's the general attitude that we seem to have among officials and, and many people in the public? 
that we have to sort of gravitate towards the negative as opposed to, oh, great, here's the, here's the light at the end of the tunnel. It's a good point. I think a lot of this has to do with the communication style since the beginning. There's been a lot of fear-based rhetoric, at least here in Ontario and in Canada abroad. There's been a lot of moralization, you know, making people internalize the fact that if you get COVID, it's because you did something wrong. Mm. Now, I you know, I do like the idea of saying initially that we're in this together, which it's, it's, it's impacted us all very differently. You want to have that unified front, but that did devolve later into you know, blaming, shaming, uh, a lot of finger pointing. And I think that uh, that now has, has kind of morphed into people that have a very warped risk perception of what COVID actually is. And we're seeing a lot of this that, you know, any sort of uh, positive a note on this is immediately met with, well, you're trying to deny the existence, you're trying to minimize. And that's certainly not the case. That's certainly not what I'm trying to do. But it's important for us to look at the whole picture and the nuance. Do you think it's possible that earlier on, or even right now, prior to going into these lockdowns, that we did gravitate towards a more personal risk assessment situation? Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's chief medical officer, prior to Christmas, he said, well, no, there's not going to be any more lockdowns. Yes, schools are definitely going back. And he was asked by one reporter, it was a press conference I was participating in. I remember one of the reporters said, should people cancel their Christmases? And he said, no. And then he said, well, I, I have faith in the people of Ontario to make informed decisions and develop their own personal risk assessments. I thought, wow, it's very interesting to hear him talk that way. Uh, clearly, they did a reversal, and now you're, you're not allowed to decide whether or not you can go to the restaurant or not because the restaurants are closed. But how would you recommend we think about and, and talk about a personal risk assessment notion? I, I think that is such an important thing going forward because we're going to have to have a new perspective uh, as we get into this post-pandemic period. Uh, I'm not saying that the COVID is going to go away completely. It's not going to, but we do have to change the way we approach it, especially now that, look, we, again, 90% of people on the ground vaccinated. So we have to look at this differently. And a lot of this is going to be a personal risk assessment. There are going to be people that when, once these mandates for masking, for example, dropping, going to still be wearing their masks for weeks and months to come. I get that. I think it's important for us to realize everybody has different situations, different risk tolerances, and I don't think it's public health or the medical authorities place to tell us what to do in our houses at this point in time. I think we're past that. I think it's important for everyone to have their assessment, understand their risk tolerance, understand their situations and make their own decisions. I know there's a lot of jokes about everybody thinking they're an armchair epidemiologist or that old joke of, oh, I read things online on the internet for an hour, therefore I know better than every other sort of top expert. But at the same time, I think there is still something to be said for the fact that for two years now, average individuals have just been reading so much about this and uh, reading medical studies that they never would have thought to look at before. And I appreciate that we don't have the the schooling and, and decades of expertise to fully contextualize those studies. But at the same time, we're kind of all in this COVID game together. And it, it's not like we're all coming at it every day as if we know nothing. We've The general public has developed something of an information base here about COVID. Oh, I agree. And you know, that it's actually kind of impressive. It's funny that I've actually learned things from my own friends uh, and colleagues who are not in um, medicine. So I think that uh, I, the way that I look at it, I always have something to learn from other people because they provide a different perspective. I think that's something that has been lacking a bit. You know, I think medical expertise is absolutely important, public health, all that stuff. But when you look at the way that, say, 
uh, decisions are made overall, economics, benefits uh, and harms, uh, the trade-offs, that type of thing. I think it's important that we have to have other points of view here. And uh, uh, in general, it's important that when we make decisions, it can't all be on science. It can't all be on economics. It has to be looking at this in a holistic way. And, uh, you know, I, th- I see it happening a bit more now, but I wish it happened earlier. You know, it's interesting you should say that. I was recently speaking with a retired lieutenant colonel. His name's David Redman. He's been speaking a lot the past year or so about how to deal with COVID-19. After he served in the Canadian Armed Forces for many years, uh, he became the head of Alberta Emergency Management Office. And a point he's been trying to make is actually the emergency management bureaus in all these provinces, they are supposed to be in charge when there's a pandemic. And if you go to Emergency Management Ontario's website, it says, you know, forest fires, disasters, nuclear accidents, pandemics, the things that are under their purview. They've done nothing in Ontario. And I think similar for other provinces provinces on this because from the beginning it was okay we have this health issue put the chief medical officer of health almost exclusively in charge and I guess the original idea in emergency planning was you have the emergency planner uh, head person who's who's in charge and then you have you know, economy, business sector, all these different sectors, health, health is obviously hugely important, but they're not the, uh, the, the, the maybe the most primary focus, but they're not the one in charge because there still needs to be someone to kind of delegate between the different interests. Yeah, and in my mind, actually, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think that having somebody who is, uh, first of all, also not just the looking at all the different sectors that are important, but also uh, trained in communication. I think that uh, mm. uh, what I've learned, look, I, I'm, I'm learning myself about media. I've been doing media for about 10 years now, much more in the last two years. Right. And I really it's difficult. There's a way of doing it. And uh, it, it takes um, some training, some practice as well. And, you know, in general, I think somebody who is just put on the face of COVID doesn't have that initial training, which you need. So I think that uh, the health part is absolutely important. But I echo what you say that it needs to be somebody who can kind of look at all of these things together, make these uh, emergency decisions, which they are trained to do, uh, and, uh, you know, move forward in a more I guess, balanced way for the pandemic. Dr. Chakrabarty, what are you seeing on the ground right now in the hospitals when it comes to Omicron in ways that it's both similar and dissimilar from the Delta wave, from the first wave? How would you compare what's going on right now? Yeah, it is certainly different. And the experience that we're having on the ground here, uh, based on uh, my physician colleagues that I've just spoken to around the world, uh, you've probably seen even uh, posts on Twitter, uh, it's certainly different than it was from the alpha and the delta wave. So first of all, I want to make crystal clear that I'm not saying that this uh, you can't get sick from Omicron. You certainly can. Uh, whereas initially with alpha and delta, when we had our waves, well, maybe I, I should say more alpha for us, our third wave, is that people were coming in sick, uh, very, very sick, requiring a lot of oxygen because they had bad pneumonia called hypoxia. Um, and certainly we still do see some of that uh, on the ward. But a lot of what we're seeing now is people coming in with Omicron who are medically fragile. And it's not so much that their lungs are affected and they need a lot of oxygen, but the Omicron has pushed over other more chronic illnesses. So to give you an example, let's say a 78-year-old guy with diabetes, mild dementia, and uh, the uh, Omicron has made him sick enough that his blood sugars have gotten out of control. He's starting to fall down because he's dizzy and dehydrated. 
this is something that we see often in internal medicine, but now Omicron is kind of acting as that trigger. So we're not seeing our ICUs being filled up, but we are seeing a lot of people coming in with this type of illness. And that takes a lot of uh, um, uh, staffing to be able to deal with. We can do it, but it is a stress on the system, especially in the context of uh, staffing shortages. When we see rising hospitalization rates in Ontario, it's no longer the case that it is exclusively or the vast majority of people going into hospital are the unvaccinated. There seems to be a more diversified group right now. What's going on there? Is What's the difference between vaccinated and unvaccinated persons who are winding up in hospital with Omicron? This is a, a very important point. So first of all, I think that the vaccination is still showing that the people who are getting the sickest, so those who are a primary COVID pneumonia, uh, requiring high amounts of oxygen and it, uh, putting on a ventilator, those are uh, by and large individuals who haven't gotten vaccinated. It's 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 uh, uh, still the case, but it is also true that that those have become the minority of what we're seeing. Is just that when you get to a point where ninety percent of the population is uh, vaccinated, you're going to see people in hospital who are vaccinated, who are um, uh, fully vaccinated, and that is a lot of these older individuals who have their um, chronic medical conditions decompensated. So uh, uh, the majority of those are vaccinated, but then again, the majority of those are not in the ICU requiring a ventilation. So the the uh, patient balance has shifted, uh, but it is still showing on the whole, vaccination is still doing an amazing job of preventing severe illness. Uh, and in, in this case, uh, going on a ventilator and, and death. Dr. Chakrabarty, a number of months ago, six months ago, nine months ago, we could see messages from Ontario Premier Doug Ford, from Jason Kenney, from Justin Trudeau saying, go get your vaccine, get your two shots, and then we can live life again. Then we can get back to normal. Now I see Justin Trudeau has made a social media post saying, get your booster shot, and then you can go back to normal. Some people are getting a little cynical in response to seeing these postings, particularly when they're being told, okay, a fourth dose is now being rolled out for persons in long-term care homes, very elderly and and, uh, people who have high-risk conditions. But as they see the booster shot being rolled out, they're beginning to wonder, am I going to continue to see these goalposts shift when it comes to vaccines? How would you respond to that? Yeah, I hear that. And, you know, I think that um, uh, initially with the vaccine, uh, the fact that uh, this is going to be our key out of here was certainly something that including uh, myself thought. And I think what has been the bit of the disappointment is, first of all, the vaccine is amazing at preventing severe complications, uh, such as, uh, you know, hospitalization and death. But I think one of the disappointments has been it's not so good at reducing transmission. And I think that uh, we are still seeing that happening in the community, and there's a lot of uh, ongoing transmission. One thing I will say, though, is that uh, one uh, issue with at least the response in Ontario, I can speak for the best, is that we've still had, um, even though we want to you know, move forward, there's still been a laser focus on cases. Mm. And, you know, you know, it's been a big problem because hospitalizations and especially in the ICU, that is the metric we really want to look at. And we're seeing that right now with uh, with Omicron, with the expansion in hospitalizations. But the issue is that when the numbers go up, I think that there's a lot of knee-jerk responses, and that's been an issue. I think that this wave will crest and crash soon. I do think it'll take a little bit longer for the hospitalizations to decompress. But the point is we can't keep chasing this 
um, count. We have to look at more um, uh, impactful and more informative metrics. And then our response has to now change is that we can still be back to normal, but we have to remember that each time the numbers go up, we can't constantly be going back to lockdown and restrictions. We have to put an end to that and move into the post-pandemic period. It still seems that there are a lot of people who adhere to what we can call the COVID zero mentality, the idea that there must not be any COVID in society and the objective of uh, various restrictions and lockdowns is to eliminate COVID. And I feel like, haven't we kind of debunked that notion like over a year ago? And yet there are still individuals who think that the idea is to just get those case counts to zero. Yeah, and I will say uh, to be charitable to that, I understand why people don't want to have a lot of transmission in the community. I, I get that because people are worried about complications. Uh, there is a, uh, a lot of worry. People talk about long COVID, uh, which thankfully isn't as uh, common as it was initially described once we have more studies on it. But the thing is that um, even if people understand that we're never going to eliminate it, I think that also strategies at, at this point that are really trying to suppress it we have to look at the trade-off and the cost that's involved with that. One interesting thing that I've noticed about Delta and especially Omicron is that a lot of our efforts that we've been trying for the past two years to suppress cases do not work very well, especially with Omicron. So I think that, you know, we saw this uh, wave coming at us. I don't think anything we would have done to to try to intervene would have changed that. And we see this around the world. It's called what I call a whiplash curve. It goes up hard and it comes down hard as well. And that's independent of what you do. And that's just the virus doing what it does, its ability to really infect people. And thankfully, the vast majority of those are minor. And that's why I think it's important for us to realize that we cannot be putting in all of this focus on a virus that is generally causing mild cases in the community. We have to focus our attention on the people who are at the highest risk of bad outcomes and hospitalization. And that's part of what happened. Uh, I, I think it was about a week ago now where the uh, criteria for testing has changed. And that's going to be one of the big things that's that's part of our uh, altered perspective and, and focus going forward. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, because this was quite a press conference uh, that uh, Dr. Kieran Moore, Ontario's chief medical officer of health, did, where he said, all right, we're not going to do pretty much any more isolation rules of close contact individuals. So long as you're vaccinated, you don't have to do that at all. Just, you know, if you have symptoms, well, then you should go get tested. But otherwise, no, no isolation. And people who are found to be positive for COVID-19 only have to stay home for five days now, no longer 10 days. And that was something that I, I think a lot of people found very interesting. There is initially a lot of applause. And then there is also the news that widespread testing is no longer going to be available in Ontario. No more PCR testing for asymptomatic individuals, and they're not going to be uh, handing out rapid tests at the liquor store anymore. They wanted to uh, basically narrow the focus, repurpose all of those resources towards high-risk individuals, towards the hospital setting, retirement homes, long-term care, uh, the places where people, if they get positive with COVID-19, I guess it could go on to be something serious. What did you make of that announcement? Because it's, well, I know those rules haven't been flipped around, but they've been overshadowed by the fact that we've now been put into lockdown. Absolutely. It was a bit contradictory when the lockdown happened. But I think this is a key part of going forward is uh, realizing that now, look, because of vaccination, this is where I'm going to really, really push the uh, benefits of vaccination. We have gotten to a point where those who are vaccinated, which is almost 90% of, of the eligible people, and it's even higher than that when you look at the, the highest risk people. The vaccine works excellently to prevent hospitalization and death. So it's personal protection. 
So when you look at that, we can now go back to, let's say, 2017, where in the winter months, we get thousands of people who get respiratory viruses, rhinovirus, parainfluenza, influenza, et cetera, et cetera. And every single time somebody gets a fever and they're you know, up in bed for a couple of days, you don't test that person to find out what they had, even if it's influenza, which we know causes hospitalizations. What you do do is get an, a general idea of what's going on in the community, and you especially test the people who are coming to hospital because you can, uh, you can do something about that. For COVID, it's a similar thing now. For the vast majority of people in the community, this has now become something that's not going to cause you to be hospitalized. So if somebody gets a cold for a couple of days and you're febrile, you stay home from work and you can go back when you feel better. The thing is, though, what we do want to do is identify those people where, you know what, you're a 70-year-old person who has had a renal transplant. That person we do want to identify because we could give them treatments and other uh, types of things to help prevent hospitalization. That's where we need to put our efforts. We can't be looking at the most minor of cases, which is thankfully what it is due to vaccination, because uh, again, we're not going to be able to focus on other non-COVID things which have fallen to the wayside over the past two years. I feel like there's a lot of public misconception about what the actual concerns among uh, among healthcare providers, among senior bureaucrats in the health system is that I, I think some people, and to go back to our discussion about the COVID zero minded, I think there are still some, uh, some double vaccinated people in their 30s who are very fearful of themselves contracting COVID-19 and, and whatever, I guess that's their right for their own risk assessment and believe the lockdowns are about stopping them from coming into contact with COVID-19. Whereas when one listens closely to those press conferences, it seems pretty clear that the, the predominant or pretty much the only justification for the lockdowns is just that there are 300 persons in ICU with COVID-19, they're worried it's gonna rise and they just wanna uh, shut things down to stop more transmission because of those hospital numbers. But they're not particular, I mean, they don't want anybody to get COVID, but they're not particularly bothered by the idea that 3,000, 4,000 uh, healthy 35-year-old double vaccinated people are going to get this thing because they believe, to your point, it will be very mild. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think there is, has, I mentioned it at the very beginning, the warped risk perception. And I don't blame people, by the way, for having uh, a risk perception that's, that's uh, um, not accurate because the messaging that's been given for the past right. two years has been a fearful one, right? Um, so I think that uh, uh, that's one of the things that's important for us to help with as we move is changing the messaging around COVID. Um, and again, I, I'm not trying to uh, um, trivialize what's happened to people who have had a bad case of COVID and are younger. But one other thing to kind of keep in mind is that the lockdown is something that I've been critical of because it does help to uh, shield people who are able to stay home, right? Mm. Um if you work uh, in an office job, you can stay home. That's great. But the issue is, is that while we were taking videos of lineups at HomeSense and people having crowds outdoors at Trinity Bellwood, <laughs> you remember that, right? Yeah. You know, what I saw in the third wave with Alpha was just factory worker after factory worker after logistics worker after, you know, people that are working in the manufacturing and logistics sector. I work in Peel. Uh, and it's, it's it's the biggest manufacturing sector in Canada, and these individuals were in, in being affected by COVID, and oftentimes were living in houses of six plus people and bringing it home to their entire family. This is what the engine was driving the pandemic initially, but this is not a, 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 an area that's going to be stopped by a lockdown, and that's why the lockdown sounds initially like it could do something, but I think it just downloads the risk onto people who are essentially. 
and unable to work from home. And we're getting a false sense of security on that. One thing I do find very interesting, and, and I think it's driving to perspectives being slightly different, is now it seems that those communities that you mentioned who were hard hit, I guess they've already unfortunately been hard hit by the virus. So now Omicron is going through uh, different demographics, different communities that weren't previously used to being hard hit. And this is no longer about fear of the unknown or the abstract, or, well, let's tell those people in Peel to stay home for 14 days. Now there are, there are different catchments of people who are encountering this virus and hearing from their friends, oh, I've tested positive and sharing those stories that haven't had these personal experiences before. It's a very, very good point. And I think that uh, one thing that we noticed that, that our Delta wave, that was our fourth wave, it was fairly blunted. And the question was, why was that? And uh, one thing that I've talked with multiple of my colleagues is the idea of immunity debt, is that a place like Peel and Toronto, Northwest Toronto especially, there was so much transmission happening even between waves that there was a lot of accrued immunity. So then when the Delta came through, we didn't get affected by it as much because the people were affected uh, previously, our unvaccinated cohort actually had quite a bit of immunity with it. I, and I, I think that's one thing that you have to either be exposed now or later or get vaccinated. There's, uh, you, you can't lock down forever and hide. And Omicron has really shone a light in that sense is that it's really, really going through communities. Thankfully for people who have been vaccinated, it's mild. And it's actually even mild for the majority of people who haven't been vaccinated. But the point is it's finding you. And one note you mentioned is unknown. By no means do I want to say that I didn't take COVID seriously, but I will say that I was fearful for my life in um, uh, April of 2020 when uh, you saw it coming at us and the first couple of cases landed in Canada. Uh, my, my wife will tell you that I, you know, I was waking up at night, I couldn't sleep, I was anxious all day. Wow. It was terrible. When I saw my first couple of cases of COVID, I was still scared. But as time went on and it became more familiar to me, you know, these are individuals that I've seen severe respiratory cases before. I've seen severe TB. And these are people that I've seen before. These are patients that I've been seeing my whole career. I became a bit more comfortable with it. I wasn't as fearful. I was careful, but I wasn't fearful of the unknown. And that really helped me psychologically. And I think that fear of the unknown has affected people for the entire pandemic, many people until now. And it's quite something, Suman, because a number of your colleagues who who also work in ICUs across Ontario, who who I have spoken with or interviewed for uh, for various news articles or on this podcast, they have similar views. They are the people who are in closest contact with the persons with the most severe cases, with the highest viral viral load to transmit. I appreciate that you wear uh, quality PPE when you're interacting with these patients, but it, it's still quite something that those of you who are you know right in the fire are some of the I don't want to say most relaxed because I know there are people who are in total denial of what's going on here, but you, you are, you're saying you, you don't want to lock down because of this. I mean, the, the fear has been brought down by that firsthand experience. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that at the same time, I know the range of what happens. I'm seeing the sickest people. Mm. Uh, you know, we are seeing the people come into hospital. And yeah, in, in our uh, Delta wave, that wavelet we had, I was seeing individuals coming in over and over and over again who were severe and unvaccinated. So I knew the, the elements going into this and what was coming out the other end. But I think that uh, it is important to note that that irrational fear, the, the fear of, for example, uh, walking by somebody outside and getting COVID. I wasn't afraid of that, right? Uh, you know, hugging my 
uh, a friend that I hadn't seen in a long time. I wasn't afraid of that. And I think that part was helped by having worked in this uh, area for the past two years. One other thing I find very interesting right now, because there are 15,000 uh, new cases a day in Ontario, I understand the number is probably a lot higher, but 15,000 people being confirmed by testing, being told, yes, you have Omicron variant, is while unfortunately 100 of those or whatever the number is will wind up in hospital, for the other 14,000, these are people who are learning, and I guess their immediate family members are learning as well, that this can be something very mild, that it's not something to be concerned about. In my own neighborhood, I can tell you, I was walking down the street just the other day and there were two people uh, talking and I walked by them and I heard the line, if I hadn't been told it was Omicron, I would have thought it was just a cold. What's the big deal? And I also tell you, I live in a neighborhood that I know is one of the most COVID skittish and I think all of Ontario. So it was kind of telling that, wow, I'm, I'm people are on the street openly saying, I got this thing. It was so mild. What's going on? Uh, very true. And actually, you know, I heard this uh, uh, in previous waves as well. Is that uh, I think, understandably, the focus is on the sickest of the sick, right? But even with uh, uh, Alpha, which, by the way, was the first one that really kind of brought it home that young people can get sick, uh, you found that a lot of people were at home uh, and, and they, they were doing okay. I think, by the way, that's another thing that helped me. Is at the very beginning, I was helping to do call, callbacks of people who were at home. Uh, who had gotten a positive test. And you get to see the spectrum. I saw the sickest of the sick, but I also saw the people, uh, including older people, that didn't have uh, much in the way of symptoms apart from a stuffy nose and fever. And again, you know, I think that people understand that I'm not trying to deny that the severe ones exist. I'm just trying to also show that there is a spectrum. And you're right with Omicron that uh, many people who uh, were initially quite skittish they went by and they didn't even realize that, oh, I just had a cold. And I think that one thing I'll say to people is that would you have gone to a wedding in the wintertime, so indoors, uh, in uh, December of 2018? And people would say, yeah, many of us have gone. Uh, and the thing is, at that wedding, if you were a 75-year-old person with diabetes, there was a significant risk of contracting influenza there that would have caused you to get quite ill. It could have caused you. The point is, um, back then, people did that, but it wasn't at the forefront of their uh, decision. And I think that is what has to change going forward is making risk calculations where COVID is no longer going to be the primary focus of everything you do every day. It's going to take some time, but we'll get there. Well, what's very interesting is we have now had two Christmases where we're told, well, I don't know, watch out, either cancel your plans or rapid test in advance. If someone has symptoms, don't do it. Or or if there's a, an older person, a person high risk, exclude them from it. Yet we all know we have had Christmas gatherings in the past and some families, it's pretty much every Christmas gathering, because if you're bringing 20 people together indoors and hugging and kissing, you know, it's going to happen where the cold goes around, the flu goes around, you get sick from these gatherings. And I, I wonder, are we going to change for many years to come how we approach those gatherings now? Or are we going to just be able to make the mental switch and, and do, as you say, acknowledge COVID's just in that roll call of concerns? Or, or, or do you think psychologically we're going to have a challenge with these things for the next 10 years? Uh, I think actually all three of those situations are true. I think that there's going to be individuals who, you know, in two years will still be rapid testing before they go out. Uh, uh, you know, there'll be individuals that just continue doing what they did and uh, people that just take some time. Uh, you, you know, I think one thing that I also want to mention is that we often talk about, okay, there is a, let's say uh, 80, my, my father's 80 years old, okay? And he's a pretty healthy guy, although he is on immune suppression for rheumatoid arthritis. He doesn't have a lot of other health conditions. 
sometimes we don't think about asking them what their risk perception is that, you know, if you're 85 years old, you know, you don't have, uh, you know, 10 years to, well, maybe not, but I mean, on average, you don't have uh, 10 years to be sitting at home, not seeing your family. So I think that is also part of the risk assessment. You can ask your older relatives, look, there's a risk here, uh, but do you want to uh, participate. I think many of them will say yes. They want to see their grandkids. They want to see their kids. And I think that's part of the whole idea of family. And um, uh, this is the idea of being away from the people that you love. For some people, they can do it in the, the name of safety. But for many of us, it's been very difficult to do that. And that's something that I hope will change um, with uh, the coming months, because it's been a tough two years being away from our loved ones. I'm sure you've seen the stories. I saw one on CBC, one on CTV of elderly persons in long-term care homes who opted for medically assisted dying instead of going into another lockdown, which was presumably put in place for their benefit. And they said, no, I don't want to live like this anymore. Yeah, that, uh, you know, I was thinking about that the other day and it, it, uh, really, really breaks my heart. And I, I think that uh, uh, maybe back in 2020, when we didn't know what was going on, uh, we did a lot of these really drastic measures to keep people apart. But to keep somebody in a nursing home, essentially like a prison for them, they can't uh, do things for them, themselves, they can't see their loved ones, or at least um, the way they can see them is very limited. Uh, I saw a couple of pictures of uh, people seeing their uh, mom and dad through glass um, during the lockdown period. That's tough. And for somebody to get to the point that they don't want to live because of something like that, I think we really have to re-examine uh, what our, our response to this was. And there's a lot of people out there who initially bought the response of, okay, we, we don't like this, we really hate it, but we get we have to do it. And I feel as the months go by, particularly now in Ontario, a lot of people who were fine with almost every previous restriction very frustrated right now. I know it's happening in Quebec. I know it's happening in other provinces saying, look, I got the double dose. Some, I got the triple. The, the kids have one or two vaccines. I downloaded the vaccine QR code passport. That was supposed to be in place of, uh, of having any sort of lockdown to come. And now they're just like, no, I'm not buying any official or Doug Ford or Justin Trudeau saying, all right, well, hashtag we're in this together. Uh, we, you know, we just got to do this for two more weeks, which we know is not true. I mean, it's kind of insulting to our intelligence now to say something's just going to be for two weeks. And there is a, a very real palpable anger out there right now. And it's not from, uh, I'm sure it includes those people who started protesting from day one that Doug Ford called yahoos, but it's a much broader catchment of people. A lot of, a, a lot of regular folks who've just said, no, I ain't buying it anymore. Yeah. And you know, I was an individual at the very beginning thought that we, this sucks, but we have to do it. The, the lockdown, but as time has gone on and I've seen the, um, people that are getting affected, the, the fact that the lockdown measures are not really targeting or doing much for that situation, seeing what's happened in other jurisdictions around the world. Uh, I, I understand that anger and frustration, especially now we're two years in. And I know, Anthony, I sound like a broken record. 90% or close to eligible people on the ground, fully vaccinated. And you know we're in a situation where we're in lockdown for potentially more than two weeks, schools out, we know all of the uh, benefits of having kids in school. It, it's just really, really um, uh, frustrating for all of us. And there are other places that aren't doing this. And I wish we would be able to follow, follow the example. But I think the other thing I will say, even when we were open uh, for the last couple of months, there was always that specter of uh, you know, the, the other shoe dropping that, you know what, 
do what you want now, but we're going to be in lockdown again. And I really want some kind of guarantee that when we come out of this, uh, that we don't go into lockdown again. And I know that part of it is our fragile healthcare system uh, that has been the kind of central tenet of all of this. Uh, it can't be fixed quickly, but that's something that has to be looked at for the future because we can't keep doing this. Let's talk about the fragile healthcare system. I've gotten very frustrated at seeing the same senior healthcare officials and bureaucrats and hospital CEOs. You know, I'm not talking about the frontline heroes, but I'm talking about the people who are paid a lot of money to effectively manage the healthcare system. And for them to turn around very recently and say, ah, 300 persons in ICU and COVID, gotta shut the schools. I find that a real abdication of responsibility. It is frustrating is not the right word to know that there are people who are basically given a blank check. I know they'd like more. I know they'd say they're not given the blank check, but we have poured, we've gone into debt to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars in this nation to deal with COVID. And you're telling me that we have a milder variant and you have to shut down my kid's school because there's 300 people in a hospital bed. Don't put that on me. Figure it out. That, that's a really good point. I think that um, when you look at this, uh, uh, initially it made sense. Look, we have to protect our resources. But now I agree. When you look at it, uh, we are being uh, shouldered with the burden of protecting the healthcare system where it should be uh, something that protects us, right? So I'm, I'm very frustrated by that. Um, the other thing is, you know, uh, even taking a step back, the idea of lockdown and restriction being a first-line public health uh, measure to me is uh, is uh, is amazing. It's incredible. It's hard for me to believe that it, you know what happened in the initial wave, uh, first wave. We saw what happened in China, or from at least what we saw on, on the news. We saw what happened in Bergamo, Italy, and also what happened in New York City. And that was kind of imprinted on us. It, that's sort of been this uh, narrative in our head that if we don't do the right thing. We're going to have a New York City where there's refrigerator trucks outside hospitals to bring all the dead bodies, right? And that has kind of permeated this entire last two years. And, you know, maybe it could be accurate, but I think the thing is at this point in time, we can't really get to that situation again, presumably, especially because of vaccination. We have to be able to take a step back and have faith in the fact that we're protected and do other things to protect uh, the vulnerable, uh, and I think one of them was the shifting the testing and realizing that what China started back in, frankly, in what was it, 50 February 2020, by locking down their entire population, that's not a general public health measure that we've used, at least for long periods of time uh, in the past. And I don't think we should ever go back to that again, at least as a first line. We really, really need to figure this out uh, for the future when we do have other pandemics. It's interesting you should say first line because there are a number of things that I can only speak to Ontario just because I've, I've studied so many of the particulars, but I know there are similar things in Alberta, in Quebec, in that there are other things that, that can be done in terms of dealing with healthcare resources. I know in BC, they had originally, during the first wave, put out a notice saying, uh, if you have recently retired from the BC College of Physicians, you will be called back into duty. I know there's talk about taking second year, third year nursing students, however many years they're in, I'm not sure, and, and putting them right there in ICU. CUs, a number of other very creative options like that, that I maybe to a small degree they have been done or are being done, but they're just not being done. And I go, guys, there's a list of things that can happen and should happen, surely. And I'd like your innovation and creativity to make these happen. 
in terms of the senior healthcare bureaucrats making these calls. But to your point, it seems like, oh, lockdowns, like the people accept them, the people take them. It's kind of easy for us to do it. Okay, lockdowns. Yeah, and you know, another thing that uh, I think goes along with that is the idea that we have a lot of control over this. I think that Hmm. um, there are many people who believe that the second wave happened because you know, I hear all the time, Doug Ford did this, or we opened too soon, or blah, blah, blah. And the thing is, is that this is how viruses act, especially at this time of the year. Uh, um, and I think that, yeah, there are things that we can do to, to brace for the impact, to protect the population from getting severely ill. But waves happen. Uh, and I'll give you another example. that uh, The third wave that we had, if you remember, was a wave on top of a wave. Well, that was um, alpha emerging from the background. We can't control that. That's what that's what happens, right? Uh, and I think that um, if that were communicated a bit more clearly, it, w- it would have been, uh, I think, better for the population. And one thing I will say, you talked about creativity. Um, I have an interesting perspective on this. Well, I should say a different perspective. You might not find it interesting. But my wife was on the IMS system. She's a a nurse uh, in our hospital system. And she was one of the key people for our hospital who helped to load distribute. So we we were getting hammered in the third wave at uh, my hospital. And she was able to help take patients and uh, arrange for transfers around the the province. And that was one of the things that saved us during that. And you don't really hear about that very often. You hear that there are hospitals that are overwhelmed, but the majority of patients in that wave was coming from the GTA. Uh, And I think that uh, that's one of the things that we could do. No one likes to do that. No one likes to have to do that. But I think that before locking down, there are things that we can do to make sure patients get the help that they need. Surge capacity, I think, is something that we need to build into the system and just do something that we are not constantly held hostage by uh, ICU and hospital capacity. Lots of concerns about staffing resources as well, both because people are being sent home because they've been deemed a close contact, although I understand those policies are currently under revision. Lots of close contacts are now back on the job. Uh, People who have tested positive for COVID-19 but are asymptomatic, uh, a number of them, healthcare providers, are being sent home for however many number of days. And of course, unvaccinated persons being put on the sidelines. Although we have heard that I believe it's Niagara Health has just decided we're going to bring vaccinated nurses uh, back into the workforce what are your views on all of this should we be should we be bringing back those healthcare providers who for whatever reason were not vaccinated uh, into the fold uh, the answer is absolutely yes that first of all i think the idea of uh, test trace isolate for the community was something that we could do back in the first wave maybe uh, but uh, now it's just impossible and omicron has now crushed any hope of that at all so we know that part in the hospital, I think that there has to be a trade-off that's made at this point in time. But we know that, for example, this five-day thing, uh, this sorry, the 10-day and 14-day isolations, well, these are the things that we were using in 2020. And we have good data that you don't need to isolate people for that long. And we have only been forced into changing that now with Omicron. So I think it could have been done before. But yeah, now you have to look at a point that, okay, if your entire staff is off, because of a a vaccine mandate, or because they're isolating, then you can't look after people, right? And then that's, uh, that's a terrible trade off to make. So I think that uh, there are some jurisdictions, by the way, in the states that they're not even testing asymptomatic individuals. uh, And so that's one way of kind of uh, focusing the people that are sick, 
keep them out of keep them out of circulation while, while they're infectious and bring them back as soon as possible. And for right now, I've seen CDC mentioned five days and Canada was looking at that as well. There's certain jurisdictions like Hong Kong that were doing, I believe, three days. Um, and we get the fact that there are going to be some people at the tail end of their infectivity. But the thing is, right now, there's so much infectivity in the hospital anyway. We're isolating everybody. We're doing what we can, but we need staff. And right now, that's going to be the most important thing. Uh, and uh, we're going to have to change the approach. I'm glad to see Niagara do what they did. What do you think is going to happen in the weeks ahead for Canada? What do you hope will happen in the weeks and months ahead here in Canada? So what I think will happen, um, again, uh, what's the, we're going to timestamp this conversation. We're at the beginning of January, so I don't have a crystal ball. But what I do think that based on other jurisdictions, this wave will crash fairly quickly. There'll be a tail end of hospitalizations, uh, and then we'll have a relatively quiet period. Uh, and I think that this will likely be our last disruptive wave. But I think in hand in hand with that is going to have to be a difference in our approach. And that means that we can't be chasing um, case counts. We have to be looking at the metrics that matter. And I think that, uh, you know, hospitalizations and um, uh, especially IC are going to be as important. And I also want to see a long term plan about uh, a plan of what we can do to help buffer um, our hospital capacity so we have more ability to uh, absorb surges. And I also want to know that we have a plan that if something happens in the future, that we're not constantly having this lockdown and restrictions hung over our heads, because I think that's been very anxiety provoking people. I want to be able to say, okay, look, when next winter goes around, we are going to see respiratory viruses. We're going to be seeing sickness. And I want to be able to breathe easy that uh, pun intended, sorry, pun non-intended, but I want to be able to breathe easy knowing that we have this we're going to have stress on the hospital, but we're not going to be locking the community down because this is something that is uh, it, it is very anxiety provoking for the population in general. And I don't think it's uh, it's uh, productive. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Pru with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. And you can help us by giving us a rating or a review and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.